G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. There are two videos of Jordan Peterson, the controversial psychologist who came to fame when he refused to, to, well, he objected to a Canadian law that was going to require him to use transgender pronouns, and uh, that caused a kerfuffle. He subsequently went on Joe Rogan's show and became something of a mentor to mostly young men all over the world uh, in ways that were overwhelmingly constructive for some and potentially deleterious to others. He's become a figure in the kind of pushback against woke cancel culture, cultural fads. And there are two video interviews uh, with him, each by a female British journalist that have bazillions of views on YouTube and that you may have caught sometime in the past five years. Well, the most notorious one is uh, the one where the interviewer is completely demolished and owned by Jordan Peterson. It's one of the most fascinating 20 minutes of interview TV you will ever see as he plays with her like uh, a cat with a mouse and she just sort of stammers around and says, so what you're saying is that that you don't think women are as good as men. And he just sort of laughs and says, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, the other of the two sort of viral Jordan Peterson interviews with English uh, uh, female journalists is a very different kettle of fish because he's up against a much more powerful and intellectually ferocious foe in the form of Helen Lewis. And that interview is one in which you cannot say that Jordan Peterson wins at all. And Helen is not the woke, cardboard, cut-out, angry feminist that Jordan comes in thinking she will be, but actually a very nuanced uh, and fiercely independent-minded individual who has some thoughtful objections to Jordan Peterson that sound a bit like this. The doctrines that I'm opposed to are predicated on, well, one assumption they're predicated on, it's probably the primary assumption, is that the best way to view history is as the domination of a tyrannical male patriarchy, and that's true also particularly of the West, which is a doctrine I find absolutely unpalatable and historically absurd, biologically ridiculous and ungrateful, among other things, Who's, ungr- like- who's ungrateful, sorry, in that? Who is being ungrateful? Look at what you have. Right. We live in the best society that's ever been created. You know, I was reading about some Indonesians. I mean, do you mean me as a woman or me as a me 21st us. century person in, in the world? I mean us, yeah. I mean, you, I'm incredibly me. grateful for what I have, but to me the then project of politics is... How is it destruction is- of a tyrannical patriarchy? You're grateful for the productions of a tyrannical patriarchy. How does that make sense? Because I think life is good. I think it could be better. That, that's, that's what being fine. a progressive means. That's a perfectly means. reasonable proposition. But, I guess but you... that isn't commensurate with your claim that you're the beneficiary of a tyrannical patriarchy. Why not? How can it be good if it's the consequence of a tyrannical patriarchy? Tyranny isn't good, is it? I mean, that's the definition of tyranny. Something that isn't good. And yet it's produced all these things that you're grateful for. Like, doesn't that contradict and contradiction bother you? Where did, where did what was good come from? Whereas, well, I think from I think I'm benefiting actually from a lot of things that I don't support that are unearned privileges in my life. I think that's absolutely true. Like your job. Like I have a very good job. I had a loving family. Quit. Who, who well, I don't think that's going to do the world any good, is that's it? That's a hell of a fine rationalization for your privileged position. 
Oh, well, fair enough. But, I, you know, if you some... could trade it off with someone who's less privileged, I could That'd be a start. I could. I could do that. And, and uh, but I don't I don't want to. And I, and I won't. And I don't think Why I not? should be expected to. Why not? Is it OK for you to occupy a position of privilege in the patriarchal tyranny? And if it is, is it because you're female or is it just because it's convenient? Let me tell you my political philosophy. I'm a, I guess I'm a social democrat. So what I believe is that you should, if you have a good life, you should try and pass that on. I believe in a progressive redistributive tax system, for example. It was once said by Lord Mandelson in British politics, you know, but New Labour was okay with people being filthy rich as long as they paid their taxes. Now, I'm kind of less okay with people being filthy rich. But Define what I filthy do, rich. Well, that, I think I would leave that You're to... probably in the top one-tenth of one percent of people who've ever lived on the planet. That would constitute filthy rich by historical standards. Okay, but I'm not so sure where, that where I'm going to line exactly? be able to help the Neanderthals at this point, really, by giving up some money. So that's Helen Lewis and uh, Jordan Peterson. That's where she first really came to my attention. She's now a staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, her book is called Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And I've also just listened to her BBC uh, radio show, The Spark, which is available as a single audio book on Audible if you want to hear it. It was a long-form interview series about creativity. She's now doing another one called Gurus, uh, which looks at you know people and movements that uh, can mislead the layperson into particular ways of thinking. And she has another book coming out next year called The Selfish Genius. I'd love to have it back on the show. Look, she's this is a very, very wide-ranging conversation. She's uh, an, an absolute joy to talk to because she's just so thoughtful about so many things and comes from things at a, at a very similar perspective to, to mine. This is not a fiery interview at all. It's not at all uncomfortable because I can't find things to fault her with. Uh, but we explore a whole lot of uncomfortable territory and we explore a whole lot of issues that were you to raise them at the a cocktail party or at a barbecue uh, or on television would certainly uh, stoke some uncomfortable reactions. So I hope you enjoy as much as I did the one and only Helen Lewis. Yeah, I've been working on a piece about Florida as a kind of crucible of American politics, which um, I guess they thought it'd be interesting to send somebody... um, not just British, but so British that I took my own tea bags with me <laughs> and made tea in a saucepan in my apartment. Have you seen the American videos teaching people how to make British tea? Oh, oh I saw there some microwaving some... one. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. There are these, and... these, here's how to make your, you know, your true English tea in 60 seconds. First, you get a tea bag, then you get a cold cup of water. You put the tea bag in the water, you put it in the microwave for 90 seconds. Now, I think they put the milk in first. So I think they had a, a cold milk water broth with a tea bag in it that they were then microwaving. And there was this long Twitter argument with Americans like going, but what's the difference? What difference does it make? Like, it doesn't make any difference. Why would I buy a whole kettle when I moved to New York, I tried to buy a kettle, and you know they're huge electronics stores, Helen, where they're you know they'll have four store stories and every single imaginable type of air fryer and everything. I, I couldn't get a kettle. They use when they do boil water, they have a kettle that goes on the stove, an old fashioned mm. kettle like your nana might have had, and way up the back. Like I asked about four salespeople, and way up the back of one corner of one store in a dusty like underneath a bunch of other stuff there were two electric kettles which i bought i was like 
I, I respect that. Do you know what I respect even more? When I got to uh, Gatwick on my way out, I was checking in behind a guy who would, he was taking his Nespresso machine on holiday. Oh, with good it. for him. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. Guess where he was. Guess where he was going on holiday? Where? Italy. <laughs> That's peak Britain abroad. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I wonder if I'll be able to get a decent cup know, of coffee in about Italy. About the Italians, you can't get coffee. <laughs> yeah, just loved it. it was oh, so that's British. great. Yeah, I mean, if you when you leave home in Australia, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK, if you only have two things before you even have a bed mattress, you will have a toaster and a kettle. That's all you need in life. Yeah, I think when I went to university, I think I probably took my own kettle. Yeah, actually, I did because I tried to boil pasta in it. That was an error. Don't do that. <laughs> you really can't. Do that. that was as bad as, bad mm. as the American white craving their tea. To be honest, maybe I should put that on the internet. Don't were you at the time, Ellen? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, that is a fair point. Actually, now I come to think of it, and there may have been factors that made that seem a better idea than it retrospectively appears. I have been wishing that I had you by my side, helping me to write something this morning, because I'm I've been just been asked to d- deliver an award uh, next week in only. A few days' time, which seems quite—I suppose someone must have dropped out or something—and they were like, "All right, what's the V list? We'll go to Josh uh, at the Australian Podcast Awards." And uh, it's an award that I that this podcast has been snubbed for two <laughs> right. years in a row, right? <laughs> so this podcast has won a number of awards and has a lot of listeners and is the kind of thing that people listen to guiltily in the halls of power uh, in Australia and in media organizations where they don't otherwise hear conversations that don't really give a shit about whether or not they they break taboos because everything's so bloody conformist in the main in the mainstream and the Australian podcast awards at the risk of criticizing the hand that's about to feed me can be a little bit backslappy you know white middle class people congratulating ourselves on how sort of diverse and uh, you know, woke we are, and so this show, <laughs> this show gets overlooked, and then they invite me to deliver an award. That's so hilarious. That has thinking... happened to me. I've been invited to judge a book prize for which my book was not shortlisted. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one of the great things about journalism, yeah. right? Is this the repeated kicks in the teeth that you get to remind yeah. you that you're not that you're not the talent. The um the kind of version of that that I get is there's obviously a kind of hierarchy of UK feminist commentators. And when some anti-feminism happens, some sort of bat signal goes up and the BBC mm. start phoning around to see who will commentate on it. And you can, because obviously I know almost all the other feminists and therefore we can see the order in which we get phoned. You're yeah. acutely aware <laughs> of your place in the hierarchy. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, Catelyn Moran wasn't available. Oh, I see. Thanks. Thanks yeah, for being Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So I guess it's probably going to be about 13 minutes past four and I'll get the phone call. Yep, there I go, right on time, in between those other two. Yeah, yeah. only leavened, of course, by the occasional fact that sometimes you've just turned something down and someone will pop up in your WhatsApp group being like, oh, I've been invited to go on this. And you have yeah. to go, oh, oh, <laughs> oh great. I'm I above you. you. <laughs> yes, excellent. Yeah, so part of me wanted to say, no, I'm not going to do deliver your stupid award. And then part of me thought, Hmm, maybe it's an opportunity to shit on them a little bit and uh, just, re- you know, just write a. Because uh, also, the award that I'm giving is, I won't go into details, but it, it is almost certain to be won by a, an absolutely beloved Australian media personality who is the toast of the left. Um, uh, oh, good. I can, oh, look, I'm just going to, I'll just shit on him because he's a friend of mine and he, I don't think, I think he'll take it in, in good, uh, in the spirit in which it's intended. But Mark Fennell is a great, broadcaster and a great bloke but his bread and butter is basically like he has a tv show and a podcast called what the british stole 
and it follows it's very good it follows the stories of things that the british empire pilfered from around the world and the amazing tales of how they ended up back in britain and so it's a sort of a it's a, a woke critique of colonialism but also an entertaining story about a history of things and it works very well on the latter and on the former it's a bit insufferable so <laughs> he's the one who's nominated in the award category that I'm delivering. So exactly how much shit I pour on him before he's about to win his award is uh, the moral conundrum. Right. You can be like, what did the Australians steal? They stole this award from me. They <laughs> stuff the Australian stuff the Australian podcast awards stole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my recognition, my due not recognition. Even a, not even a nomination, Helen. It's not that I lost in the category. Not a nomination. You weren't even, not, yeah. Not even, like two years in a row, not, not. The other big award in Australia, now I sound like I've got sour grapes, maybe I do. But <laughs> the, other, the other big award, podcast award in Australia, the Radio Today Podcast Awards, I won last year. So you would think that if you win one of them, you might get nominated for the other on one of the two years. I mean, I would say this because every so often someone describes me as an award-winning journalist and I have to tell them that the only, literally the only award I've ever won was in 2013 at the um, British Video Games Awards. I won Best Mainstream Games Writer of the Year. Literally the only thing I've ever won. But they are just about the most corrupt thing in the world. And journalism is absolutely addicted to awards. Because it's, funny, they, isn't it? it's five grand for a table and it's like the only business model in journalism that still reliably brings in cash. Mm. Yes, it's fascinating. I mean, the other thing that Mark does, and now I'm just well and truly throwing you under the bus, Mark. Sorry, I love you, mate, but this is one one quirk of uh, your personality that you could fix, is he'll go and uh, su- submit himself to exotic-sounding awards that are actually just money-making mills that charge so much for the yeah. entry that they are self-perpetuating. So there's And there's things that Australians will never have heard of, like something called the New York Podcast Awards. Sounds very important, Helen. The New York Podcast. New York, big city, important media hub. The New York Podcast Awards. But is it New York, Western Australia? Is it like a (laughs) suburb of Perth? Is that what you're going to tell me? No, it's not that bad. It is in New York. So someone in New York has a P.O. box in the Bronx and they're commuting from Staten Island to the P.O. box where they where they collect the four hundred US dollar entry fee. Four hundred US dollar entry fee on however many award submissions they get. And uh suffice it to say, Mark Fennell's very popular at the New York podcast awards uh because he he fronts up that money reliably every year and comes home with a gleaming statuette <laughs> Poor old Mark. <laughs> and then it's so much then, for him yeah it's great and then on the, his instagram you know people are like wow i mean he's kicking all these goals overseas did you hear him he won a new york podcast award what's a new york podcast award i don't know but it sounds incredible right it does to me so congratulations mark um <laughs> I'm really happy no, for you. What's that great good, uh, Gore Vidal thing? It's like when one of my friends succeeds, a little part of me dies. <laughs> that's right. But that's it's not that's not actually true for me. I do rejoice in my friend's success. I just want the success to be legit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like, you yeah, know, go, actually do, go out and do good stuff and then, you know, uh, all praise to you. But don't, don't. As, uh, as the great Judge Judy says, Helen, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. Very true. Well, I'm sure that was very relatable to everybody listening. (laughs) 
things and now that we can begin the Josh podcast. and Helen's <laughs> list of grievances. Right. All the slights I have received in my career. Oh dear. Um, what, so what? Where is your where is your career and your ambitions at at the moment? Like, what are you most interested in digging into? Tell us about the thing that's a, that's about to come up, because I'm, you know, I've seen your I've seen the evolution of what, what seemed to be your interest in the things that you're covering expand somewhat from I suppose what may originally have been straight journalism to I don't know if you'd call it commentary, but certainly an interest in. In a, a field of bullshit that's going on in society that you feel compelled to take down, would that be fair? Yeah, I think I have a, a, a sort of tendency which journalism is very good for. If I just want to stick my fingers in the plug socket to see what happens, yeah. Um, and and therefore I was, you know, when Twitter was in its heyday, I used to stick my fingers in that plug socket a lot, and now I tend to do it over many more thousands of words. But um, it's always interesting to write at the intersection of uh, cultural cross currents, right, where there isn't a right answer. Uh, and I, I just the, the thing that upsets me more than anything is the idea of writing just conventional wisdom, um, repeating back to a kind of audience of people who will then applaud me for telling them back to them what they already want to hear. So mm. I, I think that's probably been my motto in my career so far. Um, I'm really enjoying the Atlantic uh, because I get to go out and do proper reporting, which has been fantastic. I hated being stuck at home during the pandemic. And um, just being just being in weird places, doing weird things. So I, when I was in Florida in the last couple of weeks, for example, you know, I've done everything from going to Disneyland to the biggest retirement village in America, which is, which you can get everywhere in it by golf cart, um, and they sell these <laughs> sort of semi souped up golf carts. One of them I got mm. to um, sit in, which was called the limousine, which is a six seater, and you can fit your clubs in the back and like a cooler, and like everything is configured so that you can drive them around we know where other places would have bike lanes they have golf cart lanes um it's just this kind of it's like a sort of vision of the world what would happen if only 75 year olds survived Mm. um and i just love that that was just completely like nothing i'd ever experienced before and that's what i like doing going just looking at things and sort of prodding them and going that's weird isn't it and coming back and telling people about them how do you figure out what things to prod hmm um I think now I have tuned myself into the fact that things that I find interesting and weird to trust that that judgment. And that I guess that sounds very basic, but it's not in the sense that I think a lot of journalism is very status seeking and you want to pretend that you're really into it. <laughs> my old, as my old colleague used to use this, his shorthand was Korean films with subtitles. And some right. people <laughs> genuinely do love Korean films with subtitles, but there is absolutely nothing wrong as well with like loving Marvel, Marvel films or whatever it might be. And mm. I think just, acknowledging the stuff that genuinely interests you rather than the stuff that you'd like to look like interests you is, is quite an important habit to embrace. What about being on the, I mean, is part of that status thing being seen to be on the right team increasingly? I mean, this sort of comes back to what we were talking about there that I often find myself being diverted into fields of uh, inquiry or conversations on my radio show that are paths of least resistance because there's a kind of climate that's constructed by my producers and the institution that values certain concerns over other concerns. So, you know, if there's anything to do with the plight of Indigenous Australians, for example, that's going to be a story towards which we we just naturally gravitate. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I'm definitely not going to be the only journalist who's gravitating there because there's that's the cool place to be gravitating. And I'm, I always find myself having to tug against the gravitational pull towards the stories that everybody thinks are worthwhile. 
Um, and I'm never quite sure how to adjudicate whether they actually are. Yeah, but that's a bit like when, um, you know, when Charlize Theron put the ugly makeup on that made her look basically like sort of me at 8.30am in the morning and then wins an Oscar for it because it's incredibly brave. You in know, there's a, there's a bit of, yeah, exactly, when she played Eileen Warnos, the serial killer. Um, you know, and she's, oh, she's so mottled, look mm. at her. Um, mm. How brave. But, you know, but that's, there is a tendency like that of journalism too. And I think one of the biggest points when I really fell out of love with Twitter was the realisation that people weren't really tweeting information. They were tweeting facts about themselves. You know, they were tweeting they were tweeting a, they were kind of constructing a like a hermit crab shell of of ideas about them so it wasn't like you so there was a big phenomenon when I was at the New Statesman which is a left wing magazine of the story that you would put out that would be about something like a very worthy subject like benefits for example or you know cutting and that um social security type support and people would tweet it but not read it and what they wanted to do mm. was say hey I'm the kind of person who cares about this but without actually really actually caring about it which is one of the great experiences of journalism right like you get to see under the bonnet of what people actually care about and it's not what they say that they care about mm. and that can I think send you into quite a spiral of despair or it can do hopefully the other thing which is to say there are some things I think are really unglamorous but I really care about and I'm going to have to work extra hard to try and work out what are the ways that I can make people read this story despite the fact that their natural instinct is that this is porridge and this will be good mm. for me, but I'm not necessarily going to enjoy it. Yes, and then at the other end of the extreme, Helen, there are, there's a, a journalism, a Twitter commentary journalism that will pander to pe what people find it very easy to consume. So, you know, on the one, end, on the one hand, you've got your <clears throat> 40,000 word piece uh, about uh, the the future of uh, of the NHS or of Medicare in Australia and people will tweet it around without ever reading it because they want to be seen to be the type of person who cares deeply about that sort of thing and then at the other end you've got people writing endlessly about the culture wars or now about trans issues or about you know some particular hot button thing where people are so divided they've got their team and that it's going to be very, very easy to get both clicks and also reads by writing something that flares up passions on one side or another. So you sort of need to escape both, don't you? Yeah, that's just as much of a prison as well, of the, the prison of a kind of knee-jerk contrarianism. Because it's it's exciting and people are paying attention to you and you're getting feedback, whereas you know just labouring away, breaking some long-running investigative story isn't you know just it's so much it's so tragic that you will spend months and months on something and it will get less attention than something that you knocked out in half an hour that mm. is definitely an experience of modern journalism but yeah I had exactly that conversation myself when I wrote Difficult Women which is my first book about how much I would include the kind of modern gender wars in it and the conclusion I came to was not very much because it's not really relevant and I don't want it to eat what is a history of feminism through the vote and you know the fight for divorce um the fight mm. for equal pay all of that stuff that is sort of bread and butter you know that's the bit that the challenge is to make that stuff that everyone will go oh that's been written about before to make it interesting and fresh for people who are coming to it for the first time so yeah sometimes you do have to put down the confetti cannon of contrarianism and just try and <laughs> slowly work away at something a bit more sort of yes. satisfying and what, I mean, so in the grand arc of feminism, and I don't want to dwell on on trans issues, I want to get to get onto feminism, but just to put a button on trans issues, how impactful do you think that this moment of hysteria, shall we say, around the impact of, of trans women on cis women, the, you know, the, uh, the arguments about whether or not there should be safe spaces that are only for cis women and that exclude trans women, how, how, 
I suppose, meaningful will this end up being when we look back with the gaze of history on the overall quest for women's rights? Because my inclination, just to frame it, my inclination is to say, probably not very, we'll just sort it out and the dust will settle and we'll go back to some, uh, well, not back to, we'll evolve a new status quo in which there are both rights and acceptance for trans people and also some way in which cis women are able to articulate their womanhood that does not undermine them and we're just currently flailing around trying to figure out exactly what that looks like, um, but it shouldn't take more than a few decades. And then I've, I also speak to people who, you know, I was speaking to a very senior and well-informed Wall Street Journal reporter in Europe who's a floppy-haired Englishman whom I respect very much, but who's quite woke, uh, which is funny working at the Journal, but he's a reporter. And he was saying, look, the whole thing will sort itself out because trans women will join the club of womanhood. And so it'll no longer be meaningful to say something like, oh, you know, women aren't winning sports events anymore because we'll all accept that trans women are women. And so therefore the class of women will be winning sports events and I said, but what if, what if those, you know, what if those are disproportionately all trans women? And he was like, well, then that won't matter because we will have, will have absorbed trans women into the group of women and women will be winning sports events. And I thought to myself, that's not a very satisfying, that's almost just a tautological begging the question way out of the argument and probably not very satisfying to feminists. So yeah, hilarious. Where are you male, on person, male person very unbothered by other male people succeeding in life. <laughs> shock right like but and, and i don't mean to be rude or misgender anybody i'm talking to, i'm talking purely biologically but that is one of the great things that's happening here particularly in sport is that men are being asked to give up absolutely nothing it's not like a load of trans men i.e biologically female people are going to suddenly muscle in and take over the premier league right it's just not going to happen so they're being asked absolutely nothing so of course some of those men love the kind of look we should just be kind you know the, the fervor with which they're giving away stuff that isn't theirs to be, to begin with is is kind of astonishing to me but mm. I think I probably basically share your view but bleaker which is that there have been some incredibly important advances for trans people in the last 20 years you know I can remember a, a political climate and Sean Fay writes about this very well in her book the um, transgender issue you know the kind of cruelty of kind of 90s noughties tabloid journalism um, was was really kind of intrusive and and kind of gross and I think it's really good that we've moved past that but I think it's very uh, smug to kind of talk about the right side of history, um, you know, when things are not in this smooth arc towards a kind of one particular destination. That's really not how it works. But I also think what will probably happen is that you say it will shake out into some kind of compromise. Maybe not everybody will be happy, but, you know, so things will settle down. But I have a feeling that the people like me who've been immolated on the bonfire of questioning it will be kind of gently tidied away and it will be assumed that if only we'd asked for things in a more nice way somehow, a more objective way, um, if only we'd had testicles while doing so, then people would have listened to us. And it was only because we were so unreasonable that actually all this huge fire and outrage happened. And that is basically the story of, of feminism. It's the story of the suffragette movement. You know, the suffragettes are terrorists throwing bombs around the place. They would have killed people had the First World War not intervened in the UK. And then a concerted effort is made in the 1920s to rewrite the story as if it was inevitable and they were always going to get the vote and it was just merely being a bit you know delayed and everyone would have got around to it eventually and that happens I think a lot particularly in in the story of feminism there's a sort of no no we would have done this anyway you just you know you should have asked nicely or whatever it might be and so I think that will probably happen with with the gender wars too I, I don't think we'll end up in a situation where 
my hunch is the way that it's going is that every individual sporting authority is looking at the evidence, you know, world rugby being a very good example and saying, putting people who've been through a male puberty into female sport categories is not even unfair. It's actually unsafe. And so we can't do that. Um, and I think that's where more and more sporting associations are getting to. Now, that might have some really good outcomes, right? And that people might start talking about maybe we'll have some mixed non-competitive leagues. Maybe we'll have third categories. Maybe we'll have... I My preferred suggestion is always, I think I call this A and non-A. So basically anybody whose body has been androgenized is in one category and anyone else is in the other. So it's completely taken away from ideas of gender identity. It's purely about whether or not you've had that huge surge of testosterone that comes through male puberty, either because that's your natal puberty or by taking the hormones later in life. And then you create two categories on that basis. Right. So just tease that out for me. I'm trying to understand that. So uh, so, um, so, so trans men it. and cis men would be on uh, one side, but where would... Well, only if trans men have gone on hormones. So one of the really interesting things about the Leah Thomas case in the US, who was the trans woman swimmer who transitioned and then was swimming on the women's team, in the same season that she did really well, there was a trans man also competing in the women's league, a guy called Isaac Henning. And he had had a double mastectomy, so he'd had some surgical interventions, but he had not gone on testosterone. So he was somebody with the biochemistry of a natal female body. And that meant that for him, competing in the women's league was entirely appropriate. And guess what? Not even the wildest, angriest turf in the world was was upset about that because that was somebody in the competitive class of, of females, even though they were a man and they defined themselves as a man. Yeah. So, you know, if you have somebody who has got a disorder of sexual development, that means that they've got... Um, levels of, of testosterone in the female range then they could compete as a female if they've got levels in the male range that is a huge advantage of strength and power and they have to compete in the androgenized category i see um, got it so, so non, trans, non-binary trans people men. would go yeah could go either way depending on which type of you know um, bodies hmm. they have to start with and what hormones they want to take and you know what i think the thing that's fascinating to me about that is isaac hennig was absolutely happy it did not apparently invalidate him or make him feel suicidal or, you know, misgendered to compete in the women's category as a man. And I think that's really yeah. interesting that, yeah. that he that there was no problem for him there. So if you just take those categories of men, <laughs> men and women away... he was away, likely to win. <laughs> well, I, I actually... He was he likely to win. He I didn't mean, do he as there, well as... Yeah, he might not have... Sure, but he wouldn't have done... He wouldn't even have done that, that well if he was against other cis men. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the interesting thing is that in his case he clearly made a quite a good assessment of where was the best place for him to do, which as you imagine any athlete would do. When you put um, it like that, it sounds so cynical. It's like you know, oh, you're discriminating against us if you don't let us compete in the competition in which we have an advantage, but you're not discriminating against us if you allow us to compete in the category in which we're going to underperform. Well, I, I mean, who knows? I can't look into his heart, but I do think there is a sort of I think if you took the labels off them of, of men and women, it might help with the argument that is, it's a you know it's a denial of my very internal essence not to let me compete in the category I want yeah, to compete right. in. Yeah, which I, I think mean, is look, some people it, right? say we should just get rid of the sex categories altogether, and that you know yeah, those you, everyone should stupid. just compete. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, but they, those people are stupid. That means that men will win everything. I mean, that's the attitude of someone in the 1900s, and women's <laughs> categories were created in order particularly in America where you win sporting scholarships that can affect whether or not you can go to university, right? That is just excluding women from public life. Yeah. uh, On 
on this question of uh, of you know um being being the, the the extreme attempt to reform society and culture versus the the quiet quiet approach just tease that out for me because the the uh, many people would regard the analog today of the suffragettes to be the trans activists in other words people who are trying to disrupt a cultural status quo in order to get rights for a minority that has traditionally been shat upon. So they would take your an- analogy about, I mean, m- I would know many trans and queer activists who would take your analogy about the suffragettes and say, precisely, that's why we can't just hope that we're going to sort of incrementally get get accepted. We need to be quite extreme in what we're asking for so that society and culture will push back and will meet at some kind of status quo. Yeah, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make if you're from that group that there is a value in radicalism and having a kind of extreme wing that really pushes stuff so that the kind of troops everybody else fills in behind them and you actually the final position you end up is is having moved your front line forward you might say exactly the same about the kind of extinction rebellion and climate activists chucking paint all over you know oil paintings which is that while they get individually condemned, they have certainly raised the salience of that issue and they've made it a kind of debating point. And maybe what happens is some the, you move the moderate compromise two inches to the left. I think it's, and I think if you look at trans activism, it has been in the last 10 years, it has been phenomenally successful. Its tactics have, although I think in some cases, and I felt the brunt of them been quite unfair, it has certainly drastically changed people's attitudes or drastically changed the elite attitudes to that issue and when you say that in the future you think that people are going to look at at people like yourself who've been pilloried as turfs as uh oh they just went a little bit too far and they should have been nicer in what they were asking for uh just unpack that analysis for us because now i'm confused about whether or not we're, we're talking about the extremes of of uh of trans activists asking for us to change the way that we think about gender or whether we're talking about the extremes of feminists who are pushing back against that worldview in favour of what one might say is uh, an understanding of gender rights that comports more with what we had 15 years ago. Well, the the difficulty about that is that there are two different strands of, of, of pushback to contemporary trans activism, right? One is the British strain of gender critical feminism and then all the kind of allied bits off that you know and i know you've got versions of your own in australia and the us has got versions of its own and one is the reactionary right which in america is incredibly powerful and in the last right. uh, midterm elections you saw a huge number of candidates running essentially on won't someone think of the children um you know protect women's sports all these people who had never given previously a tuppany shit about women's sports suddenly saying your daughters won't be able to find mm. sports so there has been a huge co-optation i think of um, the feminist movement. And it's been really unhelpful for feminists trying to make arguments because, you know, when I write for people in America, they don't want, liberals do not want to think that they have the same attitudes as Ben Shapiro or Matt Welsh or whoever it might be. Yes. Um, so they just take a very polarized view of the issue and go, but this is what liberals think. And so and I'm a liberal, so this is what I must think. I don't want to be on the other side of it. And the nuances of the debate, and, you know, there are plenty of trans activists in the middle making interesting arguments from contrapoints to buck angel to you know some of the older um transsexuals as they would describe themselves who just get completely left out of that but yeah i mean i i think you're right in the sense that both sides um have seen the virtue of, of radicalism in in different 
ways and have both have been radical in their in their demands or in their in their tactics and that will always be something that is always discussed in any kind of protest movement or social rights movement is how much do you do boring legislative grind behind the scenes and how much do you do eye-catching stunts and protests and culture war raising the salience of the issue mm. On eye-catching stunts, I've been asked about the Extinction Rebellion uh, thing, and I've, I'm often sort of asked about my uh, opinion about, oh, did this go too far or did that go too far on some particular issue of the culture wars? And I must say my instinct, although I regard myself as a good feminist, does not align with yours, and I want you to explain to me why you're right, in, in the sense that <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes look at, for example, the gay rights movement. I mean, I'm married to a bloke and we've got kids and it's it's so normal now as to be boring and, you know, completely uninteresting. We're not the ire of anyone outside of, you know, some random pastor in Alabama. Um, and I look at the trajectory of that movement, probably the swiftest and most successful civil rights movement perhaps in history. I mean, when you look at how long feminism took and how long black civil rights took and all of the ups and downs. It's quite amazing that as recently as when I was born, being gay was not just a crime, but just widely understood to be a a true perversion. Mm -hmm. And we've come in just a matter of decades to such acceptance that it's completely normalized. And so I look at that and I think, okay, well, in the 60s, we had the big fiery Extinction Rebellion style suffragettes killing people type protests in uh, around the world this kind of stonewall era and that made people very uncomfortable but quite quickly that changed into a conciliatory approach andrew sullivan wrote his book arguing for gay marriage in the 90s which was absolutely ridiculous it was a notion that even gay activists weren't pushing for at the time because they thought it would so alienate people but he didn't throw any firebombs. He wrote a book and he did a lot of talk shows and people tried to persuade. Once they'd got attention, then they said, our ambitions are actually very simple and they, they conform to ideals that you already hold, smaller liberal ideals of family, community, equality, egalitarianism. We're here, we're queer, we want what you want. We want to not get fired from our jobs. We want to be able to have families and we want to be able to rent houses without being discriminated against and get loans and things like that. That's all we're asking for. Mm. And that sounded reasonable enough that the body, you know, the cultural centre of gravity went, oh, all right. And we weren't, I suppose we weren't, we didn't give the mainstream any reason to fear us or exclude us. And my worry now is that the trend in leftist activism is to constantly provide middle Americans and middle Australians and middle Brits, if you if you use that term, with reasons to fear that what we're actually on about is destroying everything that you hold dear and destroying Western civilization. Because look at these freaks out here who are asking for that much. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I I agree with you. I'm I'm. Uh, you know, I think I probably would have been a suffragist, not least because I'm, you know, I just have an overactive moral core rather than a suffragette. Um, but I think one, the, the fascinating thing about studying the history of the gay rights movement is to kind of look at it as it matures through different stages. And I think the same thing happened with suffrage activism, right? There was 
decades and decades of people doing marches, holding petitions, doing the groundwork, making these national suffrage societies so that all the infrastructure was there when the suffragettes came along and raised the salience of the issue, made it something that was unignorable. Because the problem was always, oh, actually, no, maybe we think women should get the vote, but we need to get around to, we need to do Irish home rule first, or we need to get around to giving all men the vote first. Right. So what the suffragettes did is moved it up the agenda. And so it was unignorable as a political issue, which was deeply radical as a, for a women's issue, because the constant trend with women's issues is always, oh, we agree with you, but it's not a priority. And mm. they made it a priority. And you could only be a suffragette, you could only do women's votes campaigning. So Sylvia Pankhurst gets chucked out by her mum and sister because she also wants to do poverty campaigning and anti-colonialism. Um, so no, they were monomaniacal. That was the thing they drummed away at. So I think there is a kind of way in which political movements mature and what might be appropriate at one stage isn't appropriate at the next stage. So in the history of, as you say, the gay rights movement, there is Stonewall. There's things like outrage in Britain, you know, Peter Tatchell's campaign of forced outing, which I think is something that's really fascinating and morally complex. But one of the things it did is it stopped the kind of hypocritical people who were happy to, you know, be gay in private or tolerate people being gay in private as long as they, you know, as it was always said, quote unquote, shove it down our throats. Mm. Um, and that made people, a lot of people realise that they knew a lot more gay people than they had thought, that it wasn't a kind of weird thing that, you know, was only being done by deviants far away. It was their uncle or their, you know, guy they met down the pub or whatever it was. And for me, the kind of classic moment of, that arc came in Britain when David Cameron's conservative leader said, I don't support gay marriage in spite of being a conservative. I support it because I am a conservative. So you're right. There had been a refiguring a deciding who are the people who've got the power that can give us what we want. And what do we need to present this as in order to appeal to them? And as you say, saying we want families and we want to, you know, we fall in love just like you do. And therefore we should be able to make commitments to each other just like you do was a complete normification. And that wouldn't have succeeded had the ask been, you know, we want we want leather bars on every corner That's uh, right. and glory That's holes right. up the wazoo, right? Like in yeah. some respects, actually, the the kind of success of the gay rights movement depended on de-sexing it, which exactly. is kind of yes, hard and taking to it. Yeah, with. yeah, no, it's absolutely right, and I, mean, I often say that. Yeah, you don't want you don't want old aunt, you know, Bertha in uh, you know in some country town just putting on the kettle and thinking about penises going into anuses you know that's not <laughs> what you want you want her thinking about normal things about normal yeah. isn't it nice uh, that my uh, grandnephew and his boyfriend like such a lovely young couple they're so happy right, together exactly you yeah, yeah. Each other. yeah and and who yeah. Would, i mean because we we've done that with romance throughout history anyway i mean when we see a young couple falling in love or we think about our children going out on on dates we're generally not thinking about one of them licking the other one's asshole which is what young straight you know <laughs> people do as well you know we're not thinking about our beautiful 15 year old boy but yeah sure <laughs> you know i don't know even if it's just cunnilingus helen i mean whatever it is you know these are not <laughs> things that you just a little bit just a little cunnilingus on the side this is yeah, not something you that you want Nana thinking about. And, but and that's, that's why abortion is, has always been a very difficult one. And people said this to me in Ireland when I went over to cover the repeal the eighth referendum, which was the idea you get abortion up to 12 weeks in a country where it had previously been basically entirely outlawed, was that we don't have a feel-good argument. We don't have pictures of happy people at weddings. You can't do that with abortion right. campaigning because right. it is for many people, an incredibly complicated, morally murky question that involves, you know, two lives or the taking of life to, to people. So again, it's not what works for one uh, social movement might not necessarily work for another. And then, you know, the, the thing that's been most 
useful in abortion terms is the idea of bodily autonomy. And that comes from earlier campaigning about contraception that was done by people like Mary Stopes. And the idea that a woman can control her fertility through contraception, once that principle was established, that that was something that was up to the woman, not her husband, frankly, Mm. that made the abortion arguments then easier to make on, on that premise. Um, and you know, get your laws off my body. You know, all that rhetoric um, that surrounds abortion is is based around that. Rather than, I love having abortions. I can't wait to murder a baby. You know, you know what I mean. Every yeah. so often, you get a sort of abortion hipster who's like, like a Leonard Dunham once famously was like, I wish I'd had an abortion. And you're like, mm. don't. What do you say? Why are you saying these words out loud? Um, well, it's you know, it is getting. I mean, it's interesting that you call it mor- a morally complex issue because I have been struck by how many Americans in this debate regard it as not morally complex and morally black and white. Uh, and I mean, even when you say, you know, get your laws off my body, that immediately alienates half of the country because they'll say, well, it's not your body, it's not your body that our laws are governing. And I'm I wonder what you think about the disjunct there. I mean, I say particularly in America because I think in Australia and I assume in the UK and Europe, there's just more of a, can we not talk about this terribly much? Like, can we take a Clintonian approach of safe, legal and rare? Yeah. Like it's a thing that happens and we we shouldn't really be wildly celebrating and in that Leonard Dunham-esque way. But it strikes me that all of my friends in America who are on the left really do talk about it in a completely morally unproblematic way. I mean, and so did I actually until I had kids and was looking at ultrasounds and things and sort of started thinking for the first time about what do I believe about life and about I don't know the destiny and fate of a human uh of the human experience uh and whilst I am still firmly on the side of that needs to be a decision made at the most local possible level which is the individual woman and and you know her doctor um I nonetheless don't think that there's nothing morally complicated about that decision and that that's a decision that should be taken with some gravitas. And that complete that seems to be completely absent from the left in America, where it's just like, this is just a medical procedure. Yeah. And the idea that some women might regret it, you know, and that's, that's okay. You know, that's, that's, that's what is going to happen when you give people choices that sometimes they make might that choice and they might not feel, you know, uncomplicated about it, it later. But having that choice is the thing that's important. I agree with you on that. It's very strange, isn't it? In Britain, still, we have the fig leaf of two doctors having to sign off um, an abortion. Oh, uh, really? Right. Which every so often there's a talk about removing. And I think the general feeling is don't open the box. Because British abortion laws are pretty liberal by um, by European standards, particularly the Southern Catholic Europe. So there is a sense of like, just don't let's not have this argument. This is, you know, this is, a, and this is, is something does the fig leaf include uh, that there's supposed to be a medical reason, Helen? Right. So the idea is that you have to have a certification that you're, um, it would be a, a more dangerous to have the pregnancy, right? And it is always more dangerous to carry a pregnancy to them. It's about the most dangerous thing you can do as a woman pretty much in your yes. life, apart, unless you're a kind of bomb disposal expert. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, maternal mortality is, is you know, for, for young women is just more, more risky than almost anything else. Um, mm. So it is always safer to have an abortion and therefore there is no reason for a doctor to, to deny you one. And yeah, right. there are ways in which that procedure could be reformed. But yeah, I, I agree with you about America. It's a it's a real shame, I think, that um, again, it's that thing of like, it goes back to the transgender issue, right? That it's kind of, you can't say anything that would give sucker to the enemy. There are two mm. bright lines mm. and there's no space between them whatsoever. Um, and I think that's not where most people live. 
just to assuage your concern about opening the Pandora's box, that was the legal um, position of abortion in New South Wales, the most populous Australian state, until uh, the end of last year, actually. And finally, Parliament thought, oh, we should need to do something about this. Again, coming back to the question of, of how do you do reform, this was not a big thing that people were on the streets marching about. It was one of those things where everyone knew it was a little bit ridiculous, and so at some point... Uh, one parliamentarian said, look, we should probably, you know, I'll, I'll just table a motion about this. And then the Premier of the state said, um, yeah, all right, you can, we can all have a conscience vote about this, even though it's something that I oppose. And the conscience vote went through and now now abortion is formally legalised without the, without having to go through the, you know, the, the pretense of there being a, a medical reason for it. So that can be done. Um, well, that's interesting because actually the way that uh, abortion has been made legal in Northern Ireland was by a similar kind of bit of technical shenanigans. So there was always this anomaly that um, Northern Ireland was excluded from the 1967-68 uh, Abortion Act um, because of the kind of religious tensions over there. And then uh, an MP slipped through a couple of years ago this idea that if the, gov- the power-sharing arrangement there lapsed, then the act would be um, brought and, and enacted over there. And because that happened, it was sort of a kind of automatic mechanism. So no one got to vote on it, really, in, the, in right. Northern Ireland. It just sort of slipped it through. And unfortunately, I think that is a way that social change happens slightly more often than you might think, is that everyone's paying attention to something else and someone puts through a slightly technical yes. change. and then Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know, and then everyone um, decides it- that they were okay with it. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, and uh, just to correct myself, it was 2019. I said last year. That feels the entire pandemic has just <laughs> compressed everything. That it felt like yes. last year. It was 2019. Um, how did you? Uh, how did the interview with Jordan Peterson come about? Uh, oh, um, I was working at the New Statesman at the time, but I was doing some bits and pieces for other places. And then GQ magazine, the men's magazine, phoned me up. I'd done something for them before and said we're doing a 30th anniversary issue and it's about the future of masculinity and we've got someone we'd like you to interview and I thought it's going to be someone really hot this is amazing this is going to be come on George Clooney your time is is up you've evaded me for too long we're going to have a big chat about what it means to be a heartthrob in the modern age um, and then they said, no, it's Jordan Peterson. And I thought, oh, dear, because I'd written a column in which I'd called him a cargo cult intellectual. I said he had all the, you know, like cargo cult religions. He had had all the Just sort of explain, a, explain what a cargo cult is. Uh, let me see. It's, it, it's the idea that you have remote islanders who were brought food drops and stuff like that by um, like American planes during the Second World War. And so they thought that that was what brought the largesse down and so made sort of little you know air traffic control ones and stuff like that in the hope that it would once again bring the largesse from the skies so the idea is essentially that he looks and talks like somebody who is our idea of a smart person but the content is actually often sort of not really there like not all that intellectually nutritious um and I think when you read 12 rules for life you know I would describe it as more like science e than science and he very always from the start very invested in the idea of mythology and religion and spirituality, but was but was being treated like I don't think he's treated like this now, but at the time he was being treated like rational man, um, right. and particularly in regards to gender, right? The idea that look, I'm sorry, ladies, but we've had you know biology is ruled on this, and you're just not as smart as as we are, so you know don't fight it. Um, and and I think well, that to, to be fair to him, I don't think he was saying that. No, he didn't say that. Actually, I don't think he. Better. But you know he what I mean. Saying, that, his his take didn't his take seem to be that 
that the bell curve is more stretched with men. So there are more men in prison. There are more men who are insane and homeless. And there are also more male geniuses and psychopaths who want to be CEOs than women. And that there's a biological reason for that, not just a cultural one. Yeah, no, I'm, I am, I'm unfairly paraphrasing him there, but you know what I mean. The, the feeling was just that the, whatever the kind of current state or his assumed slightly nostalgic ideal state of gender roles was was actually natural. Um, you know, that was the bit that was and that was the bit that was annoying to me was the sort of right. you know whatever it is is right kind of um, idea to it, rather than acknowledging the fact that, for example, you know, um, now we have a majority of female undergraduates as, as doctors versus the fact that you know women weren't allowed in the universities in Britain until 1870 and so what seemed very natural to somebody in 1870 i.e. that women with their little tiny brains couldn't handle university has now been completely upended and we might now need to have to talk about how do we deal with the problems of men falling behind in education so I'm just very wary always about making big proclamations about men are x and women are y when those things are often much more fluid than that and I think that was Mm. what initially kind of got my goat about some of his writings i mean the problem is that if so i think his his response to that surely would be that uh it has become fashionable now to claim that there are no differences between the biological sexes in terms of the way that our brains are hardwired and so i uh, what i found fresh about him in the early days and why i loved your uh exchange with him so much was that he was making some points that had become very taboo such as if you get a thousand women in a room and a thousand men in a, in a room and you are, invite them to spend their day in one of two ways, they can either get a machine full of widgets and take it apart and then put it back together again, or they can uh, meet with a family that is having arguments with itself and try to mediate the conversations between okay, those I'm, family members. Just members. to say, I'm on team widget. You're, you're not selling team <laughs> em, em, empath on this one, but go on. <laughs> then uh, statistically, you'll just find that more women do tend to want to mediate com- things through conversation than put take the widgets apart and put them back together again. And his assertion is that that's not just culturally constructed, that there are biological differences between men and women and that at the time and perhaps still was a a very unpopular thing to say and it was often interpreted as meaning that oh there's that all of the differences that we see between the genders can come down to biology but I don't think he was being that black or white about it I don't think he was being that silly about it and the problem seems to me to be if you were ever to stand astride a cultural groupthink and say okay, stick a fork in it. This turkey is roasted. It's kind of done. Like we're sort of, we already have women graduating, as you say, at higher rates, doing better in school, outperforming males in medicine and all these other disciplines. So the narrative that women are an eternally oppressed class and that we don't have to worry about men and boys has become a little bit tiresome. Then the person who would be articulating that would sound very much like a dinosaur who's just waving their arms at history and saying, oh, the status quo is perfect. Uh, so, but how do you tell the difference between the two? Yeah, I, I mean, this gets my goat as well, but slightly, because there's a chapter in the Difficult Women on Education, and quite a lot of that is about the difficulties of boys in schools and the fact that um, male primary school teachers only make up 15% of that workforce. And I would argue there is a kind of... So I talked to a guy who was like, it's amazing. It was a male primary school teacher. He said, I got a bursary to train. It was the first time, you know, as a white man, I was a beneficiary of affirmative action because the government recognised that it was a social good to have more male primary school teachers. And I think that is sort of part of the where we're getting to now with gender relations. It's not always a sort of simple, 
up down in terms of who needs the help or needs services to be tailored towards them um so I, I do kind of take that point, but people, I, I just, I, I, it kind of perpetually annoys me that I'm not the first feminist to say that. And people have been saying that for quite a long time. And it's like, why won't feminists ever talk about the problems with men? Meanwhile, feminists going, hello, we'd like to talk about the problems with men. Um, no, no, I just can't hear them. Where are they? What's going on? Um, mm. So yeah, his, his position is, is not as black and white as I think it was painted, but you know, neither was mine. I would never argue that all um, differences are purely socially constructed you know we just know that particularly testosterone has effects both on strength and on aggression and on risk taking and a couple of other things i just i i always put a little um asterisk about the fact that i just wouldn't want to render a final judgment on what exactly the limits of that are because sometimes they can what the claims we're making have shrunk considerably over time about what things are innate to men and, and women or, or just have changed over time. You know, there was a whole time when evolutionary psychology was obsessed with the idea that um, that women like pink because they were the gatherers and they therefore they could see the berries. Uh, do you remember that? That was a bad that was a I dark don't, time. That- that never, no, that never crossed my path, but that may... Yeah, you've got a lot of stuff like that. And then, of course, the fact, the thing that's fascinating about that is that pink only becomes a girl's colour in the 1900s. Well, that's right. That How seems... do they explain the fact that boys, in Victorian days, boys wore pink, didn't they? Right, exactly. It was seen as a derivation of red, which was a strong colour, whereas blue was for the Virgin Mary. That was a softer, more feminine colour. And so, you know, Adam Rutherford is very interesting about this, the um, geneticist and writer, that you end up with these just-so stories, you know, like how the leopard got its spots, where you take what is today and then you try and retrofit some explanation for it. And Mm. it's why a lot of feminists particularly are very sceptical of evolutionary psychology, which is a discipline that has some really interesting insights, but also has quite a bit in it that doesn't replicate or just seem to be kind of, yeah, reverse engineered from the status quo. Yeah. I mean, there's that, you know, the uh, analogy about conservatives and the, you know, coming across a fence in a field. uh, Oh, Chesterton's fence. Chesterton's fence. That's what it is. I had an argument. (laughs) This is weird. I had an argument once about about, um, circumcision with Eric and Brett Weinstein. (laughs) Hang on a minute, which, which side are you on? Because I am on the firmly on the anti-circumcision I'm side. I'm on the anti-circumcision anti-circum- okay, anti-circumcision side, uh, even though I'm circumcised. I'm not, I'm not a huge activist about it. I don't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't bother me massively, but I didn't circumcise my son. And I, I think, you know, why would you engage in a medical procedure that's not necessary? Um, and, I thought you were about uh, to say I didn't circumcise myself. And I was like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't that's do that either. You could, you could make money out of that. <laughs> I only go around circumcising other people, other grown adults. Um, and, uh, and it was, so it was Brett and Eric Weinstein and um, Douglas Murray and Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is imagine? like my nightmare dinner party. Go on. And uh, we're all having breakfast at the Park Hyatt in Sydney. They're out here for an event that I was moderating. And um, and they and so there's a big argument about the circumcision. And the Brits on the panel and the Aussie are, are against it. Uh, so Douglas and Marjorie, and Marjorie's very active in this space. He's very, very fired up about it. He thinks it's real mutilation and real child abuse. And um, and Eric and and Brett starts pulling out the Chesterton's fence argument. Oh, thank like, God! <laughs> so I'm pulling out what? Like, <laughs> I mean, gosh, where's this story going? He starts okay. pulling out his dick and waving it around at him. <laughs> Look at that baby! At that. Surely you want a piece of that. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that head. Um, no, he t- pulls out <laughs> the Chesterton's right. Pull that Chesterton fence, good. <laughs> yeah, he pulls out Chesterton's fence and says, you know, until I was going to get rid of some of some widespread cultural norm, 
I would want to know very clearly exactly why we're we're doing this. Yeah, I but you could wanna... apply that to the, the foreskin could be the fence. I mean, I can't believe I've just said those words in that order, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's not it's not doing you any harm, so why not keep the body part? Like, that's my general approach to body parts. If I'm not really sure what they're for, I'll probably not remove them until I find out. Well, it um, look... So the Chesterton's fence, for people who don't know, is if you're walking through the countryside and there's an old fence there, then, uh, you know, you might have an instinct to, oh, let's just bash down the fence uh, because it's obviously not doing any good. But the precautionary principle says, look, if you don't know, until you understand why the fence was built, you shouldn't knock it down. Uh, you should leave it there because you have no idea what the uh, what the people who built it were thinking and it may still have a purpose. Um, so this is used by conservatives to justify the retention of things that might otherwise seem to be useless. And they say that uh, progressives are going around smashing down all these fences, clueless as to their actual import because now all of the sheep are going to go wandering to the wrong paddock or something. Um, but the, it just struck me as a weird invocation of that because you could sort of use it again about anything. And, and it was actually Sam Harris, I think, who said, well, the, but we do know what the fence is in this context. It's just a bunch of medieval superstitions and a lack of hygiene in, in you know, long dead civilizations. That's why it would have started you know, as a, as a sacrifice Yeah, I think it makes completely and... sense if you live in the desert and you ride camels, horses, whatever it might be all day and you don't have, a you know, access to a shower, then it mm. probably doesn't make sense. However, if you live in London and you wash every day, then it's it's not quite the same, isn't it? That's very, I mean, there's lots of things I think like that. It's a good, a useful exercise to think if we didn't have the cultural apparatus about this what things would seem weird like if people didn't eat animals the first person who suggested eating an animal would be looked at like you're a monster oh yeah yeah a lovely cow what has the lovely cow ever done for us and i say that as somebody who eats animals so i have you mm. know i have no moral high ground on this one but you have to be open to the fact that it is objectively probably weird to be you know if aliens met you and they didn't know it you'd have to try to explain that and then you'd and then you murder all the boy chickens because they're useless for laying eggs right okay. yes yeah, no, it's funny that you say aliens because I had a whole bit in a, in, tw in 2019. I did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival about why social media is ruining everything, and I and I had a whole a whole screed against sort of social justice warriors and the groupthink of the kind of intersectional hierarchies that we currently engage in, and just the kind of moral sanctimoniousness of people who think that they're on the right side of history because they go around performing outrage archaeology and digging up things that people said in the past that don't conform perfectly with what our current moral uh, preconceptions are. And I was just making the point that we know that these people are not, you know, would not have been the moral pioneers of the past. They think they would have been because they're not currently moral pioneers on any controversial issues that we currently regard that the rest of us regard as being settled. And my example was eating meat. I mean, I think it's quite likely that in 100 years, people will look back on the way that we factory farm, yeah, the way that we look back on slavery and go, how did they all engage in that? Basically knowing that what they were doing was evil, yeah, but, but not standing up delicious. to it. Yeah, yeah and exactly. Just, and that's it. You cared more about the fact that bacon was delicious than the fact that you were inflicting suffering on sentient animals. Yeah, what I lack know. of moral courage did you have not to defy that? norm and if you don't defy some norm, it doesn't have to be that norm it could be i mean I, i'm I, just sort of thinking outside the box i sometimes wonder if people will look back on our entertainment now and the way that we casually use fossil fuels and that we'll have 
movies in which people just decide to go on a holiday and then they get on a plane and they don't even have a conversation about whether or not it's responsible to be getting on that plane. You know, if the if the planet in 50 years is sort of being r- racked by huge climate disasters that we're all just having to endure and we look back on those, will that be like, will, will we need warnings like we do currently on Disney movies that depict smoking or depict racial stereotypes going like this film contains depictions of an attitude towards carbon emissions that uh that we no longer that we you know that were wrong then and are wrong now and if you're not having those kinds of conversations and if you're not trying to think outside the box of morality like that then i will not waste any time listening to your moral pronouncements about how terrible people were in the past for owning slaves because you would have been owning them too yeah, I think there is a certain humility that you have to have that we're all innately conformist um, and that actually most likely had you been born in different circumstances, you would have just ended up unthinkingly adopting the mores of that time and culture and don't kid yourself otherwise. I mean, it happens more recently than that too. My friend Sarah Dytum is writing a book um, tentatively called Toxic, which I once had to call the upskirt decade, but it's about the 20, yeah, 2000s and the 2010s. And just the celebrity culture around women, around Amy Winehouse, around Britney Spears, around mm. um, China from WWE, you know, the the days of the Paris Hilton blog where he would just take pictures of people and draw jizzing cocks all over them. Now mm. it just seems like this incredible theatre of cruelty. But like you, I think we've moved to a sort of theatre of moral cruelty where instead of saying that people are disgusting because they're fat or um, spotty or they've allowed themselves to get a bit old we kind of instead we pick through their souls and find them wanting we I know what the kind of you know sort of spiritual equivalent of drawing a jizzing cock on people is but that's what that's what we do now (laughs) can I just say talking as we're dwelling on genitals that um, I am delighted to hear that off the books the intellectual dark web is not having these Angolquin ground tables about the meaning of lives but you're just getting down some solid knob chat when you get six men with podcasts together (laughs) The talk inevitably turns to knobs, as I had always suspected. <laughs> That's all we've got at the end of the day when we come together. It's the only thing we share in common. Um, where do you think all of that uh, moral finger-wagging ends? I, I think the tide is going out a bit on it, and I've been wrong many times about things before. So, But I think there is a level of kind of exhaustion with it. I think a lot of it was driven by the new forums of social media particularly the way that twitter acted as a little crucible although it wasn't very big in social media terms it had all the journalists on it so it was a kind of panopticon and everyone looked at each other um and i just think there's a certain weariness about those dynamics and you see people making jokes about some of the kind of uh you know sort of doctrinal statements that people would say a lot more now um, and I just finished reporting a story about 2020 about a kind of quote unquote council culture story. And already it now seems like this kind of, you know, the terror phase of the French Revolution, the kind of, I think that COVID, it's been interesting as I've been doing this new documentary that's about gurus, the number of people who COVID sent a bit round the bend, um, particularly in America, where I think lots mm. of liberals thought the government wasn't going to come and save them. There was no confidence at all that there was anybody who had got a grip and where people were really were stuck at home in some places. Their kids were um, homeschooled for a really long time. I think some people did go to the dark side. I mean, you mentioned Majid oh, yeah. Nawaz before. Well, and I think he's somebody who COVID affected incredibly badly. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you know, he has subsequently lashed out at me for having called him out on that. I think I was on Rogan's show and I name checked him. And uh, I mean, even the other people there, I mean, Brett Weinstein and Majid, yeah. uh, you know, Sam and Eric have have kept their heads some some to some, some degree. But 
uh, yeah, it's been amazing to see people who I had previously consorted with and thought, oh, they seem like reasonable chaps, even if I don't agree with them, become something quite different. And crypto is another example of that. You know, someone put it to me that people in Britain, you know, on furlough, their incomes dropped by 20%, but their outgoings dropped by 40%. So lots of people were suddenly stuck at home, incredibly bored with a little bit more spare cash than they were expecting. And that is the stage where a lot of people got into crypto, um, which is now, you know, turned into this huge collapse um, in a way that I think... so. Let me tell you about it. So the, the series I'm making for the BBC is about, about the new gurus. And we've looked at everything from kind of wellness to productivity to the IDW to diversity trainers to crypto to people who sort of think they can predict the future, whether scientifically or kind of astrologically. And one of the things that comes up all the way through is that the entire ecosystem is kind of based on podcasts, which I already thought of new. But the entire monetary system behind that is either wellness supplements or crypto. And it's because it's two unregulated things. It's unregulated medicine and it's unregulated money. Um, and you come up against that again and again and again. The, the, the engine for a lot of what's happening in the kind of alternative media is often, um, yeah, crypto or wellness. Like Alex Jones mm. is selling his wellness pills, his Insta-hard <laughs> pills. Uh, <laughs> Nigel Farage, who has now sort of reinvented himself as this alternative media figure, you know, is, is shilling crypto. That's the UKIP leader here in Britain. Yeah. Um, or former UKIP leader here in Britain. And, and that was a, that was one of the biggest surprises to me. Um, but I, and, but the other consistent theme of that is that the, lots of people COVID just made them spend hours and hours and hours online, and that's when they started falling down a, a rabbit hole, mm. um, and they just became untethered from a whole system of knowledge that I feel in the middle of and feel confident about, and you know is is firm foundations for me. And they just took one step to the side and they were in a completely kind of parallel reality. Um, and I think spending a lot of time at home bored during COVID did that for a lot of people. That's fascinating. Well, yeah, I am interested to hear you, you bring crypto into that group of uh, superstitions, if you want to call them that, because I got hooked by uh, the logic of crypto uh, last year, not hooked in a way that um, caused me any permanent financial catastrophe or anything um put your life savings into dogecoin <laughs> didn't you josh I, admit it you know what there was a there was a moment at which i considered putting more of my retirement into <laughs> it than would have than i would have been comfortable with not dogecoin uh but into the two <laughs> into the two biggies of bitcoin and, ETH and ethereum because there's a whole philosophy about the next generation of what the world will look like like the next era of of IT, you know, Web three and all this, and and the, and the idea that in a networked future there are going to be systems that are built upon blockchain that you know will need to mm. use, especially Ethereum. Bitcoin might just be a Ponzi scheme, but it seems like Ethereum, like the the blockchain that gives rise to a th to ether, the currency, is actually useful for various things and like you know contracts and stuff like that, and that you might be able to sort of get your home loan without having to go through banks and lawyers and stuff, and so. It's sort of a, you don't quite know what it's going to be, but it's probably going to be something. So I put about, you know, 10% of not a very large amount of money in. But I, at one point I considered putting about 50% in and thank God I didn't. And I don't know whether or not that was being, I don't think I was suckered in because none of the none of the sources that I was getting information about this from were people who had a stake in boosting crypto. I wasn't listening, I wasn't reading stuff that was being published by crypto exchanges or by Nigel Farage selling some crypto thing. It was more... I suppose if, if there was a hucksterish guru element to it, it was the futurist type techno utopian 
vision of here's a whole brand new thing. Don't miss the boat while we still don't know what it's going to be. Does that make sense? No, that makes complete and utter sense. And, uh, you know, I, I start the documentary by talking to a guy called Alex Hearn, who's now the UK Guardian technology editor, who used to work for me at the New Statesman. And I say to him, in 2013, Alex, I said to you, what's this Bitcoin all about then? Should I buy some of that? And you said, no, 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 it's all a scam. And that's why we're here, not sitting on our yachts, because you gave me bad advice. Because at that point, had I invested in, yeah. in Bitcoin, it would have yeah. I would have lived through the enormous price spike of it and it would be worth far more than it is i mean yeah my basic attitude to that is the same as yours which is that there is no intrinsic value to it except more people buying into it when there is only a limited amount of it and that is a classic description of a, of a pyramid scheme um but you're right the decentralized finance has got some interesting ideas in it although i feel like everybody's on a very slow train to understanding like an, an ordinary consumer level everyone is on a very slow train to understanding why deposit guarantees and financial regulations and lenders of last resort and bailouts and all the stuff that comes with the modern financial system while that was created because before that people got ripped off um but there are you know there are interesting things from it one of the people i interviewed who lost some money this was really interesting to me so daniel kahneman and amos tversky who founded the discipline essentially of behavioral economics Mm. to work out all the ways in which classical economics failed because it didn't take into account the fact that humans work in incredibly illogical ways one of the things that they wrote about was loss aversion so the idea when you're gambling you're more worried about losing stuff than you are motivated by winning uh and you you kind of therefore are quite defensive and this guy said the opposite to me He'd already lost money on crypto. And I said, would you invest in it again? And he said, yes, because, you know, I'm more bothered by the thought of missing out, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out than I am Mm. of losing some money. And I wonder if that's a bit what you're describing, too. It's like buying a lottery ticket to some extent. You think, yes, oh, I'm not, right. I don't think I'm really going to win this. But if I do win this, then by God, it's a life-changing amount of money. And I was, I was actually pretty confident that I would win. Because, I mean, if I'd, actually, if I'd thought that way, I would have gone into some of the alternative coins that really were speculative. I, didn't, I actually didn't think that. I just thought I, I couldn't see a future. I still can't see a future in which Ethereum isn't worth a lot more than, in which Ether isn't worth a lot more than it is now. That was my basic premise i can't see a future in which we go from a fairly low tech uh internet and financial base to a very high tech one in which some version let's say let's say not ether some version of blockchain technology isn't much more fundamentally a part of our technological world and our our everyday lives than it is right now so between here and there there's going to be some appreciation of that technology and maybe maybe ethereum will piggyback on that evolution and it's I quite love your optimism likely to. because i think it's probably more likely by the end of our lifetimes that we'll be trading conch shells in the kind of nuclear bomb <laughs> ruins of our former cities <laughs> so maybe yeah maybe i'll stick with your vision of the future rather come than with me mine. it's so much better we've got we've, we're showing our penises to eric weinstein <laughs> we're, it's, it's gonna be great fun come with us Helen. i've always longed to show my penis to eric weinstein <laughs> maybe in the next life yeah uh, you mentioned that one of the other guru uh, topics in your in your upcoming series is about diversity trainers and and mm. before i let you go i, I want to get your thoughts about race and identity politics and diversity because when you say that you think that the the kind of Cult cancel culture hysteria has waned, and that it already feels a little bit passe. I, I agree. I hopefully agree that that's true of the sorts of, you know, academic gets defenestrated because he made a joke, you know, about women's lingerie in an elevator 
where a feminist overheard it or something like that. That may be true of that and, and the kind of outrage archaeology of going back and finding a tweet that someone tweeted that seemed homophobic in 2009 uh, and, uh, you know, therefore uninviting them from the Academy Awards. But it may also be the case that the overarching worldview about how to arrange ourselves as a society that's been articulated by the woke has now become sufficiently accepted that we no longer even regard it as being controversial and we almost don't even notice the win. So the old school, smaller liberal values of cherishing the individual, regarding the individual as having some sort of sanctity and autonomy and I guess giving a giving our cultural props and our uh, our respect to individuals who buck the tribe and who think differently the, the volume on that has been turned down and the volume has been turned up on treating ourselves as a bunch of tribes competing over a finite pie and we're in a timeless struggle of a, a power play basically between racial and sexual and whatever national tribes and you know, we have to support disen- tribes that have been traditionally disenfranchised and put them above tribes that have been traditionally powerful. And that that now is just so much part of woven into the fabric of how we think about things that we don't even notice it. Do you agree? And if so, what will become of that? Is that just the new normal? I think there is a reasonable point to that. One of the things I did last year was I went to Albania to interview the Crown Prince. Long story. but. One does. Uh, but, you know, that was a country that was uh, under a completely vicious communist re- regime under a dictator called Enver Hoxha um, throughout the second half of the 20th century. And it was interesting to go around the Museum of Surveillance, which is just shows you how incredibly that had penetrated into everyone's homes. You know, these were people with the broom handles that had got listening devices into and, and listening to their neighbours' walls. Wow. And we have created something sort of even like a volunteer Stasi, I think uh, the comedian Stuart Lee has called it, that we have essentially created that for ourselves voluntarily through the social media and the internet. Mm. But um, Leah P, who wrote a brilliant book called Free, uh, about her time growing up in Albania, you know, talked about the fact that her family had got all these codes. You know, somebody had gone to university, which meant they'd been sent to a labour camp, and then they'd graduated, which meant they'd been released, or, you know, they'd flunked out, which meant they'd been executed. And and I think some of that has kind of crept into the way that I hear people talking now, that there is a certain sense of, like, we know that there are code words that you can say and there's a level of kind of camouflage but my main worry about it all is the fact that I just think that issues that I deeply really care about like feminism anti-racism whatever it might be have been co-opted as office politics essentially Mm. Um, and not just office politics but also a kind of Versailles like etiquette so the idea of basically you know having to sign diversity, equity, inclusion statements when you're proposing your academic research. Does Is that actually a useful way of making your, your teams more diverse? Or is it the, essentially the equivalent of knowing what the fish fork does um, mm. and which cutlery to use? And mm. I think there is definitely a version of that, that there is a, there is, it has just been kind of turned into a kind of corporate hierarchy and status seeking in a way of kind of killing off your enemies. And I felt that that was very strongly with the piece that I reported for the Atlantic that was out last month about called the Guggenheim scapegoat was that the person who got defenestrated in that case wasn't necessarily the person who'd actually done the most wrong. If she'd done anything wrong at all, it was that she was the most convenient victim to make the mob go away. And that's the bit where I think will persist because big, powerful institutions will always want to perpetuate themselves. 
and people will always get thrown overboard. And your point about that, you know, um, someone's old tweets being dug up um, so they can't host the Oscars, you know, that's just the Oscars who want to have no, you know, stigma attached to their brand. So why not um, cut someone loose? Why make that? Why make that defense? It's a PR problem for them and they solve the PR problem by being cowards. And as Mm. long as that is the, the, the dynamic that will go on, the bit that gives me hope, and I think this, I definitely see this in terms of UK feminism is there is now a counterweight, which is that if you are a coward as a company or an institution, you also get a huge backlash and people think less badly of you. And for several years, all the downside risk was on, uh, you know, would have made you make the decision effectively to be a coward. And now actually it's much more, more balanced and you might get in trouble either way. And that more than anything else, more than some great awakening of conscience or um, principles has readjusted where I think some institutions and corporations have ended up on that yeah that's interesting and i mean i've sort of i mean the the counterpoint to that is that you need the diversity statements and you need this kind of etiquette and where do the uh you know what fork do i use for my entree uh you need those things to be embedded in big companies and in government in uh, just not not as the solution to racism and sexism but as part of the framework for addressing them do you buy that i think i'm i'm i maybe am poisoned by cynicism but i really worry that it becomes a kind of um you know box ticking pr hr thing rather than a genuine commitment so why does feminism have so many problems getting it achieving its aims right compared with say even gay rights activism gay rights activism wasn't i don't think making any economic demands on anyone else what was the challenge to power in that um, now tell me if I tell me if I'm wrong because I'm not an expert on that. But I think the idea that people should be allowed to marry who they want is not the same as saying we should have free universal childcare in terms of the right. demand it's making on capital and power. Yeah. And that's where I think you have class issues. And I put feminism as a class issue because I think we're talking about women as a reproductive class who are providing both unpaid housework, unpaid caring for children, unpaid elderly care. And you know, not all women and lots of men do that stuff too. But but those are things that are still at the moment pretty heavily gendered Mm. and so assigning a financial value to them would have huge consequences for everybody who's currently freeloading off all that stuff and so it is a much harder ask than putting you know universal signs on the toilets or making everyone put their pronouns in their email signature or whatever it might be all these sort of splashy things that make you look good but don't actually demand that anybody gives anything up um, at, at a really senior level. So that's the bit that makes me feel quite cynical about all that stuff, I'm afraid. Yeah, yes, I share the cynicism. Uh, yeah, I just think it's a way for for white middle class comfortable people to feel like they're doing something about big issues that they don't really need to address. Um, how would you put in a, how would you logistically, I haven't looked into this enough, so forgive me, put a price on, for example, unpaid housework? I mean, I, I understand the justice argument for doing so, and then I also understand the economic argument, the sort of dry economic argument of, look, well, the market puts values on things automatically. So people pay for things that they want and they do things for free when they want to do those things for free. And parents want to raise children for free and they don't want to abuse those children. So let's change the cultural dynamic perhaps between how this is gendered, but the idea that you need to put a monetary value on things that people are doing for their own love of their family i mean we don't put a monetary i don't get paid to go to the gym and you know survive 
for, so that my children, so that I won't die before my my children uh, grow up. I don't get paid to quit smoking. I don't get paid not to drink too much. There are all kinds of lifestyle things that I do that are, that impose a burden on me. And raising my children is one of those things that shouldn't be drawn into the economic domain. Well, there are effectively you are being paid not to smoke in the sense that most Western countries have ramped up tobacco taxes to the extent where they're now incredibly high and every packet of cigarettes you buy is a huge percentage of that is actually going in tax revenue rather than the cost of manufacturing which is essentially a way of the state saying if you're going to do this we're going to make you pay for it mm. because it's it's bad for you and it's imposing costs on the health system there's an analog to that to be being single i mean single people pay more and you know people who have babies get a baby well, you get paid to have a baby in australia there are baby bonuses and you get tax cuts for having a family and so on single single people pay more yeah, and and so those are the kind of policies that I think are the way to do that. So parental leave, particularly shared parental leave, and particularly a portion that can only be taken by the father, non-birth parent, same-sex couple partner, um, that is reserved precisely for that person. Because otherwise what tends to happen is that you end up with women taking it and getting penalised for it, and then men feeling that they can't take it. I'm talking about straight couples, obviously, but they will be penalised at work if they're taking this sort of voluntary. Whereas if it seems right. as this is free money that you only get if you take the parental leave that is that drastically reduces and straight um, drastically increases in straight couples the amount of men who take it up um so there are, there are all kinds of policies like that i mean caroline crowdo perez's book invisible women has some of this that when they were initially laying out gdp um there was discussion about whether or not what things they would count in it um, and there are all sorts of problems with gdp as a measure for anything so i did an episode of my BBC podcast, The Spark, with a guy called Ehan Masood, who's written a book against GDP. Because essentially, if you're a country, if you're a developing country, you should, to boost your GDP, you should chop down all your forests, burn all your natural resources in the pursuit of productivity. Yeah. Um, it, it is, it, you know, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a useful measure, basically. So the, the problem with increasing your GDP is that you would, you know, it's like the great paperclip simulation, right? Where you have the AI that makes the paperclips, and if you run it long enough, it turns the entire world into paperclips. That's basically the problem with GDP, is that you should do all these things that objectively terrible with huge negative externalities for the planet in order to boost your gdp so that's a you know sorry that's a very long-winded way of saying i'm not sure you can ever entirely quantify love but what you can do is provide the government assistance for the way that you think means having a good life and what being a you know having a, a good citizen should do and, and we do that already in, in loads of different ways and so i'm not i don't think it's a great qualitative leap to do it to encourage family friendly policies let's uh will you uh, will you play first eight questions with me uh, our subscribers uh, who uh, who get bonus uh, content are able to hear me me pepper the guest with uh, a few random sort of rorschach questions that you can answer uh, very very briefly uh, shall we play that now okay um, wonderful. So if uh, if you're a subscriber, uh, then uh, continue listening. And uh, and if not, you can always subscribe at uh, uncomfortableconversations.substack.com. Um, what's getting worse and worse as you get older and what's getting better and better as you get older, Helen? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's start with getting better just to be optimistic. Bring, brings, it brings us back to the flopping out of penis. Uh, right, um, yeah. No, I really have trouble maintaining an erection these days. 
That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, if you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the, uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations. Thank you.